Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. If you have a copy of the notes and you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Malachi. Uh, This is... almost the end of our series in Malachi. We only have two more sermons in this particular book. In this particular passage, we'll be looking at Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 12. One of the things that I want to stress to you in this particular passage is that trust in God matters that what we trust in matters, and that our trust in God is important. And that even though in our lives we might experience difficulty, we might experience suffering, and we might experience even injustice, we can trust God to make all things right. As I was reading this particular passage and preparing for today, I was reminded of a time, a very minimal time in my life, when I suffered injustice. Uh, and just to be clear, I have forgiven both people who were involved in this illustration. I'm not harboring bitterness against them, although I may sound a little salty about it. But in fifth grade, I had a teacher whose name was Mrs. Domer. And in that class was a blonde-haired girl named April who sat in front of me, and no one knew, but I didn't particularly care for her. She wasn't kind to me or to anyone else that I knew, and I always felt like Mrs. Domer had it out for me. And one day, April decided to cut her own hair during craft time and blame it on me in an effort to get me in trouble. And Mrs. Domer immediately sided with April. And maybe for the first time in my life as a fifth grader, I felt this sense of injustice, that that I had been wronged for something that that I didn't actually do. Now, thank the Lord that... uh, I have a mother and a father, and particularly a mother who is a little ferocious for her son. And she argued my case with the school to to get me out of trouble. And the truth came out. And the truth was this. April was a known liar. And in that moment, I was vindicated by the mother that the Lord had given me, and the injustice was made right. But for many of you, for many of us, The injustice that you've experienced in your life is way greater than what I just described. And and the injustice, the difficulty that you may be experiencing hasn't come to the same conclusion that mine did. And in fact, you, you may be able to sympathize more closely with the people in this particular passage in Malachi. So if if you're able, I would ask you to stand with me for a reading from the Word of God. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17, it says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am sending my messenger, and when and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. 
for I do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be in the land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. You see, what we see in this particular text today, the thesis statement for this particular text is this. The God of justice will return to reward those who worship him and punish those who do not. Until his return, he expects that we will steward everything he gives us to worship him. The first admonition out of this particular passage to us today as the people of God is this. Do not doubt that God is a God of justice. Verse 17 of chapter 2 and verse 5 of chapter 3 serve as bookends to this section. The people of Israel doubt that God is just and God tells them of his coming judgment. In verse 17, God says, you have wearied the Lord. This is to indicate that the Israelites have made endless complaints and charges that are tiresome. And for any of us who have had children, you can understand what the Lord is saying here. Or or if you have been around a person who complains a lot, you can understand what the Lord is saying. That instead of in gratefulness... The people of God are coming to him in a spirit of grumbling and complaining and never rejoicing in his good gifts. But here the Lord is encouraging us to consider what we say when we venture to speak to him. Oftentimes when the people of God pray to God, we spend more time asking him for things and complaining to him than we do actually praising him for the marvelous things he has done. As a result of what's happening in this particular text, the Israelites have come to a terrible conclusion. The conclusion that they've come to is that God isn't just and that he isn't willing to punish sin. And listen, listen to the words in verse 17. These are the Israelites accusing God. They're saying that God acts as if everyone who is evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And in a sense, they're, they're calling out for God to judge the wicked. We're going to say much more on this later. But what God tells them in verse 5 is that he will come in judgment. And when he does, he will met out just judgment. The people are asking for justice, and God tells them he will bring justice. But the justice that God brings, no man, no woman, no person will be able to stand before the judgment seat of God on their own. Do not forget, friends, that the unjust nature of the world that we live in has a limit. The justice of the Lord will come. And and you should already, in a sense, start to feel a rejoicing in your heart and mind that the wickedness of the world around us, the injustice of the world around us, the sin of the world around us will come to an end. And the wrongs that we see perpetuated around us will have their moment and time in which they will come to a conclusion. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, speaks of this time. 
It says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Brothers and sisters, friends, Jesus Christ will return to make all things right. And there is an incredible joy that the believer has in the fact that we know all injustices will be made right in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We must think about this at a personal level, that the injustices that you have personally experienced, the injustices that are happening around us right now in the return of Jesus Christ will be made right. What a wonderful truth. But here's a truth inside of that truth. Here's what we see in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, that the coming of Jesus will be marvelous and terrifying. These verses, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, speak of a time before the judgment when true worshipers will be purified to offer righteous worship that is pleasing to the Lord. And since this passage is in the Old Testament, we see Malachi speak of both the first and the second coming of Christ. In verse 1, he speaks of a messenger that will come. And this messenger will prepare the lay of the Lord. This message is spoken of before in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we see this messenger that is to come, a voice that cries in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path in the desert, a highway for our God. Malachi also describes this messenger later in his letter in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Who is this messenger? It's none other than John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 10 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Mark 1, 2, and 3, and Luke 1, 17. These passages all reference John's arrival. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is a direct quotation of Isaiah 40. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But what we see in this particular passage, what we see that's been repeated in this book of Malachi, what is an incredible reminder to each one of us is this word, Lord, that will continue on in the passage, Lord of hosts. You see, it, it's one thing to promise justice. It's one thing to promise making all things right. It's another thing to be able to do it. And this book reminds us, this passage reminds us that the God that we serve, the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, which are the same, has not just the desire to make justices right, but the power also to do it. And so we can trust that when he returns to make all things right, he will not be powerless to do so. But in fact, as the Lord, as the Lord of hosts, as the Lord of all armies, he has the power, not just the will, but the power to make all things right. This phrase, Lord, is used to show his role as master. One of the reasons that we can trust, that we can trust the Lord and trust his coming judgment of the Lord is because he is the Lord. There is no one above him. There is no one who has control over him. He has the ability to do exactly what he says. But this passage speaks of another messenger of the covenant. This messenger in whom you delight is what the text says. This one in whom they delight, it's not John, it's Jesus. Verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3 make this clear. 
as it describes who Jesus is. But what we see in this text is that the Israelites' desire for justice turns to fear when the justice comes. You see, the, the second coming of Christ has a twofold purpose in the life of the believer. And here, here's the twofold purpose of the second coming of Christ. The removal of sin permanently, that's purpose number one. Purpose number two is to reward those who follow him. He comes to remove sin permanently and to reward those who follow him. The two word pictures given here are meant to show that there is a removal of sin that happens permanently from those who follow Christ. The refiner's fire and the fuller's soap are essentially the same in nature of what they are meant to represent. The, the refiner's fire is meant to remove all impurities from precious metal. The fuller soap is meant to take dirty clothes and make them clean, to remove the dirt from the, the clothes. But here's the idea that's being communicated in this text, and I've already stated it, but I, I want to make it even more clear for you. None of us, no one, can stand pure before the Lord on our own. This purification, though, is meant to reveal the faithful, faithful worshipers of the Lord. And these faithful worshipers will then be pleasing to the Lord. But then in verse 5, the Lord tells them that the judgment will come for those who are not true worshipers. This is where the second coming of Christ will turn from being marvelous for some and terrifying for others. It will be terrifying in part because the Lord himself will be a witness against those who did not follow him. He will bear witness of their sin, and this judgment will come quickly. This is actually another purpose in the second coming of Christ. There's a purpose for those who follow him, and there is a purpose for those who do not follow him. In this particular passage, he lists the sins committed by those who will be punished. The list moves from bad sins to things that are often overlooked or considered not as bad. But let me say to you, most of these particular sins would have had a direct impact on their financial and socioeconomic status. So what he is saying in this list of sins and how he ends this particular passage is that your sins, the way that you live, represent the fact that you don't trust me. That what I have called you to do, you're doing the opposite of it in a sign of a lack of trust for what I have commanded you to do. This is very important to remember as we move into the next section, that at the heart of sin is a lack of trust in God. Let me say that to you again. At the heart of sin is a lack of trust in God. These lists of sinful behavior continue in the New Testament. They're not just an Old Testament idea. They continue in passages like Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, where it lists all these things that are consistent with walking in the flesh, walking with sin. But now, listen, brothers and sisters. Listen to the life that we can have in Christ. Listen to what we can walk in now as true worshipers of Christ. Listen to these words that, that may be very familiar to your ears, but hopefully have a new significance when, when thinking about what Christ has done for us. Listen to the words of Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Listen to what they say. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Brothers and sisters, 
because of the purifying work of Christ. You can now offer to the Lord what is pleasing. Even though we'll never be completely free of our sinful flesh, but because of the work of Christ, you can live a life of honorable worship to him now, at least in part. And then in one day in the future, everything we will do will be pure and pleasing to the Lord. This is one of the most marvelful or marvelous things of the final purification of Christ in his second coming is the removal of all sin in our glorification. Can you imagine this? And I'm not even talking about the world out there now. I'm talking about my own heart. That there is a point in the future in which by the purifying work of Christ and our ultimate glorification, we will not struggle with sin anymore. Can, can you even get your brain around that for a second? Because I'll just confess to you, in my heart, I probably sinned 400 times today. Because the struggle with the flesh is real. There is a constant battle that each one of us is having with the spirit that is in us and the flesh that clings so closely. And there is a day coming, brothers and sisters, where that struggle will be gone. And all, everything that we do in the glorified state will honor Christ completely. It will be the purest form of worship we could ever offer. We should, in some sense, feel the tension of this now, where we want to do what the Lord has called us to do. And because he's begun the purification process in us, we, we have a desire to want to do what he's called us to do. But we will never be completely pure to offer, offer up completely pure worship until Christ returns and glorifies us. What a day it will be, brothers and sisters. But here's the incredible truth inside of this passage. This is the comfort as we wrestle with our own sinful flesh. And, and here's the truth in verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7. God's unchanging nature gives opportunity for repentance. He starts in verse 6 with these words, For I, the Lord, do not change. This is one of those phrases in the Scriptures that we've got to stop and think about for a minute. Because in our lifetime, so many things have changed. Technology has changed. Mode of transportation has changed. I mean, we got cars that drive themselves now. Could you imagine you trying to explain to 10-year-old you Teslas? Like, I, I don't even understand it now. I don't even know how I would explain it to 10-year-old me. Even we ourselves have changed. We've changed physically. We've changed mentally. Some of those changes have been for the better. Some of them, not so much. And there are some people who would say that change is good. And there have definitely been some things, even in our lifetime, that have needed to change. I'm going to date myself for a moment. Do you guys remember C.D. Walkman's? Did those things ever work right? I mean, the idea that you could carry a CD player in your pocket and go for a jog, like that never worked. And, you know, honestly, who's kidding themselves? I didn't ever go for a jog with my CD Walkman. But, but even in the car, I had one of those little tape things that went in the tape deck. Do you guys remember this? Or was this like an Iowa thing that never happened here in New York? That thing would never go a full song without skipping a hundred times. So, kids, there used to be this thing that looked like a DVD. Do you guys still have DVDs? Okay. It only played music. That's all it played. And you had to put it in this player. It used to be a big stereo. But then they made these little ones that you could carry in your pocket, but it was still like the size of a softball. And it never played right. It never worked right. It always would skip, and the song would be all kinds of weird. And now you guys have... Do you even use iPods anymore? Does that even exist? Now just everybody has it on their phones, right? Uh, you can have every song in the world instantly. You have no idea what it was like to skip. Anyways, whatever. But 
that technology was terrible, it needed to change, now we have iPods and iPhones or whatever it is we have. But here's the truth. During that whole time, during centuries past and centuries present, there is one thing that has never changed and in fact has never needed to change, and that is God. He was perfect in eternity past, He will be perfect in eternity future, and He is perfect right now. In theology, there is a word that we use for this. It's called the immutability of God, the immutability of God. The immutability of God is the fact that God never changes. And the immutability of God is so important because what it means for us is that a God that never changes can't go back on His promises. And in fact, because He is immutable, He cannot go back on His promises because He does not change. So this means that when God makes a covenant, meaning God enters into an agreement with His people, He will not and cannot go back on that promise. And so then when we come to verse 7 and we read these words of chapter 3, verse 7, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. And we see that God made a covenant with the great, great grandparents of these people that the book of Malachi is now written to, a covenant that he intends to keep even though they have broken it for centuries at this point. And he says to them, if you return to me, I will keep my promises to you. And that means for them. And listen to this, brothers and sisters. Listen to this, friends. And that means for us that because of the unchangeable nature of God, past sins do not doom us because he extends to us the ability to repent and be forgiven because of the covenant of grace that he established with us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you feel the freedom of that? That means that God knows exactly what is in your past. He knows everything about you, and yet he extends to you the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ to forgive you from whatever has happened in your past and to not hold those sins against you, but instead in his immutable character extend to you forgiveness as you repent and turn to him. This is the God that we serve, brothers and sisters. The God whose character never changes, never will change, and does not need to change. But we must remember that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. So this God in both the Old and the New Testament is unchangeable, and this God is three in one. And when we read these words about Jesus in the New Testament, we can look back on his immutability in the Old Testament and know that these words are true. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And when Jesus says these words in Mark 1:15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, we can rest assured that if we repent and believe, we will be saved. The immutability of God guarantees it. But this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. This is where the immutability, the covenants of God come to life in the everyday, mundane, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays of our life. Because what we see in this particular passage is that God in his unchangeable nature created the entire universe, that everything in this universe 
belongs to him. And so to keep anything from God is to rob him of what is rightfully his. You see, the people of God question him again at the end of verse 7. They ask this question, how shall we return? And at first this might seem like a good, innocent question, but what is being, in, what is being implied here is that they don't think they need to return to God. They don't think that they've done anything wrong. But God tells them they are, in fact, committing an act of continual crime against him. In fact, what he calls, what they're doing, is robbery. They have robbed God by keeping the tithes and contributions that they owe him. These were probably the offerings given to sustain the Levites, which were the priests of the nation. They had no means of income but were to be taken care of by the people they served and led in worship. Numbers 18, verses 8, 11, 19, 21 through 24, they all describe the tithe that was to be given to them. In the Old Testament, they had a required amount they were to give to support the work of God through the priests. In the New Testament, there's no prescribed amount that we're required to give God, but we are to give according to the grace that He has ministered to us. Now, let me be very clear before I launch into this next section. This is not a passage about tithing to the church, okay? The main point of this passage is Jesus Christ. And when we see Jesus Christ for who He is, I won't want to hold anything back. I won't want to keep anything. So unless lest you hear me say you should give more to support the church, let me be very clear. That is not what I'm communicating. What this text and what I'm communicating is when you see Jesus Christ for who he really is, you'll see your life as not yours anymore, and you'll give it all away to him anyways. So to stand up here and preach that you should give more is to not do justice to this text. But, but here's what's happening here. In this text, he is talking about financials, gifts, and goods to be given to the priest. But, but let's just get one thing real quick here. God doesn't need our money. I mean, is the God that you worship big enough that you know that he doesn't need your stuff? Do you know that? He has everything already. He, he could snap his fingers and we'd all be billionaires tomorrow. Did, did you know that? He doesn't need your stuff, but what he wants is your heart. So the real issue isn't how much or how little they have given, but remember the real issue is how much do they trust God to use and give away what he has given them to bring him glory. That's the real issue. How we use everything we have, our time, our money, our physical abilities, and resources show how much or how little we trust God. It's not just about money, but stewardship of our lives to him. But God tells his people that as a result of robbing him, they have actually been cursed. And the curse involves God withholding a blessing from them as his punishment. In the New Testament, we we now see what is commonly referred to as grace giving. We recognize that everything has been given to us by God, our salvation, gifts, ability, and all our stuff. They don't belong to us, but have been given to us by God to steward for his glory. So in grace giving, the question is how much should we keep, not how much should we give because it all belongs to God. It's all His and just on loan to us. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Here's the point. You can't outgive God. You can't do it. But what God really wants is a heart that is satisfied in Him, who will cheerfully give away all that they have for the glory of God. This passage reminds us of the same thing that Malachi is about to show us. 
God will meet our every need so that we are able to do the good works he has called us to do. You see, the, the call in this particular passage, especially in verses 10 through 12, is to live your life in such a way that trust in God's provision. We must remember that God has just told his people that they are cursed for their lack of trust in him, and that lack of trust in him has revealed itself in their disobedience to his commands. But he tells them that there is a solution to this problem, that they are to surrender what is due God and bring the tithe into the storehouse. He actually calls on his people to test him, not in the sense of tempting him, but to prove what he is saying is right. You see, the only way to see the blessings from God is to live life his way. And then when we do, he promises to bless us more than we can imagine. And he challenges them to prove the promises of God by bringing the ties to him in faith. What God promises to do in this text is to open the window of heaven, which is a word picture of like floodgates being opened. Have you ever seen floodgates of a dam being opened? The water rushes out in such an incredible way that it seems like it would be impossible to stop it. The flood is so overwhelming that downstream from an open floodgate, the, the rush of water washes almost everything away. The picture of the flood can often be one that is very destructive. But here, the picture is of blessings from God rushing forth in almost an overwhelming manner. There's a second picture that's being painted here. It's a picture of a harvest that is so great that it can't be contained in a normal way. Uh, in one of our church, one of the most famous harvest is uh, John and Kelly's annual cucumber harvest, in which uh, they make all of these cucumbers into pickles, and John and Kelly are very generous with their harvest. But imagine a garden that is so great that it produces a billion cucumbers. We wouldn't have enough time or resources to even use all the blessings of that abundant harvest. Brothers and sisters, if we trust God and we use our resources to honor him, he has promised his blessings in such a way that are greater than our minds can even comprehend. You see, everything we do to serve the Lord should have a specific aim. Lest we get confused here and think that the main promises of God are for physical blessing, the blessings that he intends to give his people are primarily spiritual in nature. And in the New Testament, one of the things that we see, one of the things that's referred to in terms of the blessing of God is what's referred to as a harvest of souls. Every ounce of time, resources, gifts, and money that you use to serve this local church with, God promises to return a harvest. Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says this. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, God intends to see souls saved and disciples made through your generosity and service in this local church. But think about it even on a larger scale. There are four missionary families that are supported by our church, financially, physically, and in prayer, that will deliver the gospel to see a harvest of people that would never hear the gospel otherwise. I just want to say I'm so thankful for our rope-holding teams in particular who are tangibly supporting our missionaries. Even this week, I received a message from one of our missionaries just thanking our church for the constant contact they've received from one of our rope-holding teams. Even for the month of November, we're intentionally spending time during prayer meeting to pray specifically for our missionary families. This is actually using our resources. This is using our time, our ability to see a harvest, a harvest that God has promised. But how then, how do I go about 
making the connection of this passage to my own life? How do I take what Malachi is saying here and, and bring it home to my own life? Remember, I've been consistently doing this through the study of Malachi to go back to one of the most important passages in the Old Testament in terms of this convers or New Testament in terms of this conversation, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It tells us that the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and instruction in righteousness. So what are the major doctrines of this passage of Malachi? Let me suggest to you that there are four. Number one, the justice of God. Number two, the return of Christ. Number three, the immutability of God. And number four, the created order belongs to its creator. So, first and foremost, I need to make sure that I understand these particular doctrines. I understand what the Word teaches about these particular items. And to make sure that, that my thinking is aligned with those. So, once I begin to understand these doctrines, I need to start to sort through my own, my own thinking and my own belief to ask the question, where does my thinking need corrected? And here's one question that I think is important for you to ask. Do you believe that God is just? And do you believe that He will bring judgment? You see, this question has two parts for it. For us as believers, brothers and sisters, we must continue to trust that our God will one day make all things right, that every injustice will be made right by the Lord. If you don't believe this, this will radically impact the way that you live your life. But if there is a day in which the Lord of the universe will make all things right, I can suffer injustices for the glory of His name, knowing that He will one day make all things right. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you must know that a judgment day is coming, where you will be held accountable for every word, deed, thought, and even intention of your heart. And the Lord Himself, who knows all things, will bear witness against you. And the only way that any of us will be able to stand in that day of judgment is by admitting that we're a sinner, repenting and turning away from our sins, and asking the just judge, Jesus Christ, to save us. Let me encourage you to do that even today. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is no promise of tomorrow. And once we step off into eternity, either by death or by the return of Christ, there is no more opportunity after that point. Behold, today is the day of salvation. But here's a, a second question that I, I want to pose to you that may need corrected in some of our thinkings. Do you actually believe the windows of heaven can meet all of your needs? You see, remember, one of the main themes of this passage is that the way that we live will either evidence our faith in God's provision or evidence a lack of trust in God and a reliance on our own abilities. But when we believe that God can meet all of our needs, I am happy to serve others, to use my resources, to give away what is necessary to serve others, knowing that the God of the universe can open the windows of heaven at any point to meet any need that I would have. But we, we must move this particular conversation about correction in thinking to behavior. The text in 2 Timothy 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 uses this word rebuke. This indicates that our behavior needs to be changed in accordance with where our, our thinking was corrected. So then the question has to shift. Not do I believe, but am I living like I doubt God's justice or provision? Again, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because oftentimes we are blind to areas where we lack trust in God. So we must take time to actually evaluate how we're living to better understand our hearts. 
In the text today, the, the evidence that testifies against the Israelites is their lack of generosity towards God and His people. And so we would be remiss if we did not take a close look at how we're using our finances. The question is, does my checking account reflect a trust of God or a trust of self? But the same question should be asked of every area of our lives. Does my use of time reflect a trust in God or a trust in self? And let me encourage you this week to do an evaluation of multiple areas of your life, to genuinely ask this question, what does my behavior show that I trust? Here's the second behavior question in terms of this. Is there an area of my life that I'm trying to keep from God? You see, it's one thing to sin unknowingly. It's another thing to know the right thing to do and not do it. And this passage uses very strong language to refer to this type of sin, that when we try to keep one area of our lives for ourselves, we are robbing God. And if there is any area that you know of that the Lord is calling you to give to Him and you're not doing it, you must repent. And you must begin today in surrendering to Him. But friends, if we circle back and be reminded of the great nature, the great character of the God that we serve, His unchangeableness allows for you to be forgiven of any sin that you might be currently living in. He extends to you in His grace and mercy the blood of Jesus Christ as payment for your sins and the ability to turn from the sin and turn to Him. But here, here's two challenges I want to issue today to you, and, and then we'll close. These questions are in line with the final part of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. What is the instruction in righteousness from this passage? You see, one of the things that we often get backwards is that we're quick to want to, to obey, but we're slow to address the motivation by which we obey. And so this week, I want to challenge you to do two things. First and foremost, I want to encourage you to stop to take time to meditate on the coming return of Christ in all His glory and the implications that that will mean for us as Christians. You see, if we're ever going to obey, if we're ever going to be good stewards of what God has called us to do, we must have such a high view of Christ. We must have a high view of God so that it only makes sense for us to do what His Word calls us to do. If we see God for who He really is, then it makes sense to do exactly what His Word calls us to do. Once you've spent some time meditating on the coming return of Christ, the freedom from sin that that will be, the glorious nature of His return, then out of that, I want to challenge you to use the resources God has given you to be generous to one person this week. Now, this may look like you invite someone out to coffee to spend time to pray with them, and, and you sacrifice your time, and how much does Starbucks cost now? $75 a cup? I don't even remember. But that you would sacrifice your time and some of your resources to minister to someone, to pray with them, to find out what's happening in their life. Or maybe it means something as simple as a telephone call or a text message to someone that you haven't spoken to in some time. But the goal is to encourage you to sacrifice something that you hold dear to serve someone else. And so by serving Christ and raising His glory in the worlds in which you travel. So I want to encourage you to take up those two challenges this week. But let me say again to you, friend, if you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the unchanging God extends to you salvation today. Would you repent and turn to Him? Would you stand and, and pray with me now? Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us the opportunity to gather today, that you've given us your perfect word, that, that even though it was written oh so many years ago now, it speaks directly to our hearts. Lord, we're so thankful that you didn't just call us to iron-fisted obedience and lay a bunch of rules on us. 
without both giving us the vision and power to do these things. That by revealing yourself in your word, you give us the desire through the power of your Holy Spirit to want to serve you. And then the person and work of Jesus Christ allows us to be saved so that the Holy Spirit can then empower us to do what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to see the great and glorious nature of the fact that the God who never changes, the God who created the universe with his word, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And because of this unchanging nature, you can be trusted. Help us to trust you today with all of our resources, with the purpose of your glory alone. Unite us together as a church in accomplishing your works. Lord, I thank you even this morning for the physical representation of these boxes that in many ways are a sign of the desire of our church to want to bless others for the sake of your glory and the expansion of your kingdom. Lord, I ask again that you would use this offering of, of these resources in such a way that you're glorified, that believers are encouraged, and that the lost are saved. But help us even today as we move from being the church gathered here together to becoming the church scattered that we would not lose sight of the purpose that you've called us to, that you have saved us and given us the resources that we need to see a lost and dying world right here on Long Island, one for your glory. Help us to be consistent in the way that we live and the way that we worship you so that you are magnified in us both when we're together and when we're separate. We're asking now, Lord, so many of us have on our hearts the names of those who do not know you as their Savior, people that we love and care about, we're asking now that you would draw them to yourself and save them. Use us as your ambassadors, as your mouthpiece to deliver the gospel. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.